0: Pandemic wise, yes, I did a lot of this stuff that a lot of people were doing. So I hopped on the TikTok trend. I was really hoping that's what you
1: were going to say.
0: <laughs> so, no, I don't do any dances because uh, even though I
1: have Latino jeans, oh, I, I, I was don't... hoping there was a dance TikTok. <laughs> I, just... I can dance, but I'm not so sure I'm ready for everybody else to be watching me dance. <laughs> um, so I did partake in watching them just have to tell you guys the visual I have when part that little thing with the air that flops all over the place that's outside of like car dealerships and stuff. It goes to the left and the right and the front. That is the visual I had of Naftali. Dance TikTok. <laughs> Please don't be a flopper, people.
2: Welcome to the Integrated Care Podcast from the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. I'm the podcast editor, Grace Pratt, the behavioral medicine faculty at Great Plains Family Medicine Residency in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And I am joined by four of my five co-hosts today. So we almost have the full team. We are going to talk today about the year anniversary of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I'm curious to hear from you guys, what in your mind was kind of marks the beginning. Um, and then we're going to reflect back a little bit and then look forward and see, you know, what are the challenges moving on? And of course, tie it all into integrated care. Um, but I thought it might be a fun little icebreaker to hear from everyone as you're introducing yourself. What, if any pandemic trend or bandwagon, did you hop on this year? Uh, I think that the isolation drove all of us to do kind of funny things. So, I'm curious to hear from you what you took part in. And if for some reason you didn't do any of the pandemic trends, what maybe was most tempting or most appealing for you? I'm just going to start to my left of my view with Dr. Christine Borst.
3: Hello, I'm Christine Borst, medical family therapist, former professor, and business owner. guys will be really surprised to hear that there is not a pandemic trend that we did not engage in in this house um we did every craft on earth there was like a local there's a small local business that would like deliver craft supplies to our door i'm like i'm supporting local business it's it's great um we had Uh, My friend who was staying with us during the pandemic brought all of his drag stuff. We had a drag tea. We really enjoyed it. Um, And I think the first, the day in my mind is the 16th for sure, March 16th. Uh, My husband and I had been on our anniversary trip to Mexico. And as the week goes, it's like progressing and people are like, okay, it's, my, you know, the, the babysitter and my mom are like, we, we can't find toilet paper in the store. And we're like, okay, here's some bidets and it's time to come home, I think. So we got home, our dog died, and then the pandemic all started on the same day. So it was, we had to really therapeutically craft, I think, through that.
0: <laughs> now, did you also like hop on the home improvement and renovation trend? Because your home right now is looking... Super stylish. I mean, if you you, get, you guys can't see it at home, but this there's this. It's either wallpaper or it's mural. painting a mural. It's a mural. Yeah, holy! This was goodness.
3: like two weekends ago. I was like, I need. I painted like two two murals in a weekend because that's that's also very much my personality. So yeah, it's no amazing. Thank you guys. Thanks.
0: Yeah, so, so there's this beautiful white shelf with you know. Nicely arranged knickknacks and um, it matches the couch. It's fantastic, man. So uh, hi, I'm Naftali Serrano. I'm the chief executive officer here at the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. And uh, pandemic wise, yes, I did a lot of this stuff that a lot of people were doing. Um, I, the, the one thing that, that people probably wouldn't have guessed and I, I certainly wouldn't have guessed because I'm not huge on social media. You know, I'm I'm sort of a late Gen Xer, I guess. You know, it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in there, but not quite. So I hopped on the TikTok trend. I was really hoping that's what you were going to say. <laughs> so no, I don't do any dances, because uh, even though I have Latino genes. Oh, I, I, I was don't... hoping there was a dance TikTok. <laughs> I just, yeah. I've actually I've actually turned around, not, not seriously, but turned around with, uh, you know, if we ever needed to do a fundraiser or something or, or some challenge that uh, I could get membership to do something to make me dance on TikTok or something. But, you know, it's TikTok is, it, it, it was sort of, uh, my whole family had gotten on it. My wife, who's an emergency medicine physician, uh, got on it and she does do a bunch of the dances and all that and has gotten like her hospital mates during the pandemic to, to do it, oh gosh. Nice. So Christine is showing everybody on me on the screen. So I don't like post a lot or or do anything like that. But I love watching the funny, just average people just talk about their life or laugh about themselves or and then there's a mix of politics and other stuff that just makes you feel when you feel isolated, just makes you feel a little bit more sane in a different way than Facebook, which just feels like, I don't know, sometimes it's just, you know, a bunch of uncles posting, you know, MAGA stuff, you know? <laughs> <laughs> have you been eyes. on
2: my Facebook? What's going on? <laughs> uh, you know, I lo- what I love about TikTok is people are so creative and I think it's yeah. a great example of the constraints. So you only have a minute at the most and then people will use like the same sounds but they come up with just this wild diversity of ideas. It's so cool to watch.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so, so that was that was my main, but, but I also did home renovation stuff, um, you know, did a lot of uh, uh, self-care uh, type uh, stuff, which was helpful.
1: You all with the home renovations are making me feel bad because I definitely wasn't doing any of the things that I probably should have done that would have been helpful. Um, so this is Monica Harrison, licensed clinical social worker, um, consultant around integrated care. Collaborative care with Hartford Healthcare right now, as well as board director for the National Association of Social Workers. That's already a mouthful and enough. Um, you know, I did start to have a bigger presence on social media, which other than Facebook, like that was pretty much it for me. So getting Instagram and I viewed TikToks, although I did not record any. I can dance, but I'm not so sure I'm ready for everybody else to be watching me dance. Um, so I did partake in watching them. I'll tell you the one thing that I did do and I'm not embarrassed about it, but it was interesting and I can't really figure out why is I did watch Tiger King and still talk about Tiger King because every time I would see, I would just be like, what? And you know, like this, like there are people out there, but it was still like, what? What?" (laughs) So I definitely indulged in Tiger King and because of social media, anytime someone starts talking about like hey, who's seen this show? I immediately would go and like watch that show so that I can get in on the conversations on social media. Um, So then whenever I would talk to my husband, he's a superintendent of schools and I would say, well, the people say we should watch, you know, ABC. And he'd be like, who are the people? Social media people. They're the ones who are telling us that we need to watch this. Um, So definitely a lot of television watching and series wise. And the first time that my husband and I collaborated on something together, We ended up doing a series of um, YouTube videos around kind of, it was the beginning of the transition, all the kids being home, just trying to give something to individuals about like, it's okay, we're all in this together um, from an educational side and a kind of behavioral health side of things. So it went over well, other than I don't think he's gonna do it with me anymore because my little Southern draw personality aggravate Tim at times. And then I just turn it up a notch. So I'm not so sure if we'll be doing that again together, but it was fun while it lasted.
2: Awesome. Uh, you know, sometimes you just gotta, just gotta sprinkle a little bit more of that in.
1: Just a notch. And especially here, because we do live in the North, as soon as the y'all comes out my mouth, everyone is like hysterically like laughing. And I love it. On the other hand, he's just like, can, can you stop? And I'm like, I can't. <laughs> I
2: just, like, I can't. Bridget, you're the only one left.
4: All right. Uh, my name is Bridget Beachy. I'm a clinical psychologist by trade. I uh, work as a BHC consultant and uh, lots of other things. I did a lot during the pandemic. Uh, a lot of the, the things that people uh, were, were into, like Tiger King, watch that. Uh, started on Shit's Creek, which I know is blown up. Uh, then I learned how to play chess. I learned how to golf. Uh, I got, was, was on audible, like crazy listening to never listened to so many books in my life. Uh, did the home clean out and donating items thing. Uh, created an online PCBH course and did PCBH week last May. So it was eight hours worth of CEUs that are still available, uh, for home study actually. So that was a huge project that, uh, my husband and i had had on our to-do list for like probably three years and finally got around to doing it so uh yeah it was a really really interesting time and i remember when it hit i i i was one of those well it's kind of embarrassing but i thought it was going to be more like the flu i wasn't really believing some of the hype because i don't watch the news It's something that i stopped doing a couple of years ago and so my mom always, whenever I get home, she t- tells me all the bad news that exists in the world. And I'm always Mom's like- trying to
1: keep you in the know. She wants yeah. to be on top of it.
4: And it, I mean, if somebody died, she'll be the first one. I mean, all these things, which of course, like I hear this stuff eventually. If it's a big enough news, I've always figured if it's big enough news, I will come across it. Uh, Cause people are like, well, how are you going to stay knowledgeable? I'm all right, I'll, I'll be fine. And so <laughs> it's always just like this, like, Oh, but this happened and that happened and this happened. So it's like, oh, there's this really bad strand of whatever. And I was like, okay, yeah, I'm sure. And then like a week later, nowhere had toilet paper and we were in a full on pandemic. So I don't know what I learned from that situation or not. Still, still don't know what to make of it. Yeah.
2: Well, I, you know, let's, I'm, I'm happy that we can spend this time kind of looking back together, because I think one of the important things when we have been through a collective trauma, which goodness knows we have, is finding ways of making meaning of it and finding ways of processing it together. So, yeah, it, it, it kind of felt like it came on all at once for me, too. Um, I live in Oklahoma City. And that's where the Thunder game was canceled. Um, Like the stadium was full, people were ready. And then one of the players tested positive. And so they sent everybody home at the beginning of the game. And that for me was the moment of like, oh, something, this is going to be big. Like if you're, the stadium's full, you're ready to play and you send everybody home. That's telling us something. And so Then it felt like it just sped off from there. Uh, As far as trends, there was a hot minute where I was really enjoying that whipped coffee (laughs) with the instant coffee and the, uh, yeah, it felt like something a little bit of a fancy treat to have at home. Now I've Moved on my current home coffee situation is cold brew with chocolate milk mixed into it, and it makes a pretty good mocha. I have to recommend. Um, so I I want to move us on. Uh, we're going to take a quick minute for news and notes, and then I know there's a inside CFHA segment that Natalia. I'm wondering if you could lean us into and maybe telling about the any conference announcements.
0: Sure. Yeah. So we'll do this here real quick because we want to get to our main uh, topic uh, for, for today. Here's the notes. Real simple. We've got a, a spring policy extended learning opportunity that's part of the conference. And what's behind this is really a desire to help us find our voice as, uh, as an organization as supporters of integrated care, we've got a lot of folks on the ground who are doing fantastic work. Folks who are uh, championing efforts in their local areas who are working hard upstream against uh, regulations and policies that uh, really inhibit good team-based care. And we thought, hey, it's time we find a voice and say, hey, we don't have to just always swim upstream. We can actually advocate for ourselves both within our organizations uh, and then out of of our organizations with local and state uh, policymakers, insurance companies, et cetera. Um, And it's also a good time because there's really a lot lot more openness today related to uh, integrated care and team-based care. It's tied into every major movement in healthcare today. So so we're going to have an event to basically help the average CFHA member the average uh, behavioral health director, the average champion of integrated care, the average physician who's trying to champion integrated care at their clinic um, to engage and advocate effectively in whatever sphere they find themselves in. So uh, stay tuned for this. You'll find out more information on this on our conference site because it's, it's an event tied to our conference. We call them extended learning opportunities. So they happen right before our conference in September. So you can go to our conference site, integratedcareconference.com. So that's our news and notes. And then uh, do you want to uh, lead right into Inside CFHA, Grace? All right. Grace has kids in the background, so she's mouthing, yes, go right ahead. We'll, we'll, we'll just go right ahead into Inside CFHA here. So uh, <laughs> we're professionals here. Don't worry about it. We're professionals, yeah, we've all got you know, this is the other thing about the pandemic, right? It's like we've gotten used to, and this is actually one of the things I love about the pandemic that we've gotten used to allowing our personal lives to be okay in our professional lives. I absolutely love that. I've seen so many pets, <laughs> like Christine, literally,
2: the me. moment Neftali said that. Rosie, Christine's dog, jumped up onto the couch. You perfect. mean
3: my quarantine puppy, the other trend I forgot oh,
0: I no, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> All right. Hi, everybody. My name is Naftali Serrano. I am the chief executive officer here at the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association, and this is Inside CFHA, where we take a few minutes out of our monthly podcast to talk a little bit about what's going on behind the scenes here at CFHA. And there is a lot of stuff going on. Um, I'm here with my partner in crime, Marta Saucedo. Marta, why don't you say hello to everybody?
5: Hi, everyone. Um, Well, I think a lot of people know me now, which is good. Marta Saucedo, I'm the project manager for technical assistance and strategic development. And it's great to talk to you all about the new things that we're doing and the highlights of uh, CFHA at this point.
0: Yeah, so let's jump in here with um, one of the ways that we're serving our members with, and particularly our, our behavioral health directors. So one of the things that, that is a value here at CFHA is really growing leaders in the world of integrated care. And of course, a lot of that happens just through the networking and through people, through our conferences and the education. But it's really important for us to also just um, provide opportunities for people in small groups. So Marta, why don't you talk a little bit about a a very special course put together by our very own Dr. Sandy Blount.
5: Yes, it's actually a course that it's called Leadership in Integrated Primary Care. And it's a course that is just given to eight people at the time. And the reason is because they go really, really deep into the practice of whatever these leaders are doing in their agencies. So it's a course um, in which they meet, I believe, every other week for a couple hours and uh, we started one in the month of January, the second cohort it's already full and it's going to start on the month of March, but if you're interested stay tuned because we are going to open the cohort number three in the month of September. So, like you mentioned, uh, it is given by Dr. Blount, and it's, it's great. I, I have hearing great feedback from the people that are already working on it. It's good as a networking, but also because you gain leadership skills. And the most important thing is that you're bringing to the practice what they are already working. The requirements that we just have for that is that you are already, um, or that people are already um, reporting to you directly or indirectly. That's the only requirement that we ask for. Uh, so if you want more information, feel free to reach out to me, or like I said, stay tuned because we're going to open cohort number three on the month of September. Yeah,
0: and we'll we'll uh, give you that contact information here at the end. But yeah, I, I participated in one of the uh, cohort meetings uh, recently along with uh, Parinda Khatri and Jeff Ryder, and we were just uh, being interviewed by the cohort members about our experiences as directors and specific questions around how to deal with certain political situations within organizations. So it's really an opportunity to, um, you know, really uh, grow your leadership skills specific to integrated care. Um, I learned a lot just, uh, just being part of that meeting, which is fantastic. So thanks to Sandy for putting this together you know, really when, when Sandy came up with the idea of this, I thought, you know, there's probably nobody better to do this than Sandy given his years of experience and um, and the kind of person he is. Um, so, yeah.
5: With that being said, uh, there's other support for directors. Uh, like we mentioned, networking is so important to know people who are doing similar things that you're doing. So Naftali, why don't you talk to us about the directors group?
0: Yeah, so, you know, Sandy's course is a very intense level of commitment for folks, right, to uh, pay for a course, to show up as frequently as they do uh, for the learning. But we also wanted to create some less intense supports for our uh, directors who work in integrated care settings. Um, And so we are forming these uh, peer groups. So this is a peer support thing. And our job is really just we're going to be helping organize these these um, individuals who have uh, asked to sign up. And I think at this point we have about, I don't know, like 25, 30 of these individuals and we're putting them into uh, peer groups, sometimes by region or interest. And uh, then those peer groups will just meet on their own, sometimes with our support, sometimes just on their own uh, throughout the year. And we'll just keep tabs on them as they go. But it's a much more light, easy way to get support if you're a director, to ask questions of peers, um, and just to have a peer group, which can be helpful when, when you kind of feel a little bit alone as a new director at, a, at a, an organization that's starting an integrated care program. So um, again, uh, just let us know here. Uh, our contact information, the easiest way to get to us is info at cfha.net. That's info at cfha.net. And um, you can ask, uh, hey, how do I get connected with a director's group?
5: Natalia, I was just thinking that it's last week was actually a year that we started with uh, COVID-19 and the world got shut down and the conference was very different this past year. Uh, we still are dealing with how the conference will be for next year, so why don't we talk to the members about what we're thinking for conference 2021 in Madison, Wisconsin?
0: Yeah, and this is an important question to get to at this point. We, we just closed our call for proposals uh, at the time of this recording uh, this Monday, the 15th of March. And, um, and so there was a little bit of confusion around, hey, what, what exactly is going to happen here? Because we have two sets of dates on the conference website. And while I'm, while I'm talking about this, Martha, you should look up those dates because I'm horrible. I should know these dates, but I'm horrible at remembering which, which ones they are. But in any case, we, the, way, the best way to think about it is just there's two separate CFHA conferences this year. That's the best way to think about it we are absolutely 100% gonna have a virtual conference. And that's really important because we've heard a lot from members who either because of logistical safety or cost reasons, just can't travel, can't afford uh, potentially to travel or their institutions aren't supporting travel yet. And so um, we just feel like it's important regardless to have a virtual experience. And so all of the work we're doing right now is, is focused on that virtual conference. So the call for proposals and all that, the virtual conference is the full CFHA conference. But then we also have set aside some dates in person in Madison, Wisconsin for um, another conference. Now it's still a CFHA conference, but we're not gonna put that together till later in the year as we assess conditions on the ground and nationally for our members to ensure that it's the right kind of experience. Obviously, if it's not possible, not safe, uh, things have really still not turned around enough. Then we won't be able to have that experience. But we're hopeful that we'll be able to have an experience on the ground in Madison, Wisconsin, for those who wish to and desire and, and are able to make it to the conference. But it'll be a different experience than the virtual conference. So, for example, will will this this the in-person conference is likely to be much more focused on networking on you know, sort of reconnecting with folks. Um, and, and then uh, we will probably tailor sessions in a very different way than we have before with uh, more large group sessions, uh, more targeted topics uh, of interest, um, et cetera. So it'll be a different variant of, of the
5: conference. And I have the dates here for the virtual event. It's going to be the 20 to the 23rd of October. And that in-person event, it's scheduled for the 14th to the 16th of October.
0: Right. And, and with the in-person, it's not likely to be all three days. We've just kind of set those dates um, just because traditionally that's the way our conference runs. Uh, more than likely, it'll be a shorter period of time. Even if we, if we do have the in-person event, it'll be shorter, probably a couple of days um, uh, of those two days. So that, again, is more like a stay tuned thing. And I know that probably half of you out there are groaning because your last year has been about staying tuned and adjusting to change and all of that. Um, all I can say is I feel your pain with that. And we certainly are, you know, we're, we're holding out hope that we can make it happen. Uh, but regardless, that's why we're focusing so much effort on the virtual event so that there's certainty. And the certainty is that for sure is happening. It's going to be the same format that we used last year that worked really, really well for us and that that we got really good feedback on. And um, yeah, we're we're looking forward to it. We're getting some great content in.
5: If you want to get more information, uh, you can look at it into integratedcareconference.com. Remember the topic of that this year is justice, health, equity, and reducing the digital divide. Join us. Uh, We're starting to receive the proposals, uh, a lot of good topics. Um, Our... Um, compromise to you guys. It's also that you are satisfied with the conference, with the content, and we did it last year, and we are committed to do it again this year.
0: All right. Well, that's Inside CFHA. There's a lot more going on. It feels like there's more going on than that, but we're not going to bore you with that. For Marta Salcedo, I'm Neftali Serrano. Tune in next time for Inside CFHA. Thanks. Thank you. Oh man! This is actually one of the things I love about the pandemic—that we've gotten used to allowing our personal lives to be okay in our professional lives. I absolutely love that. Yeah, it normalizes
1: it though, right? And I think it has really taken the pressure off from you know a lot of us that we're doing things remotely before that we're making sure like is the house quiet and when does everybody get out and scheduling the times and. You know, are your pets, your, um, I call them fur babies. Are your fur babies put away? Like it starts to really just take some of the pressure off and normalize.
3: I totally agree. And as a working mom, I remember like starting my first job with a six week old baby thinking I've got to pretend that these two worlds are completely separate and I have to keep them separate. And it's been, and like Monica said, for someone who's worked from home for years before this, it's been so empowering to just say, I am a mom and a professional. And guess what? We all have home lives. It's not something to be ashamed of. Like let's how can we use this to really connect more with the people that we're working with? Because everybody's there, right? You're seeing clients and their kids are running through the back or whatever. It's 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 so humanizing. I love it.
0: Absolutely. And and you know, the other part. That has been different has been clothes, right? So like it, it really highlighted how much clothes is, is a power move, right? It's like you you wear clothes because you want to present power to the other person, right? And and now, and it's sort of leveled that out. It's like, no, we're we're two human beings. We're not, you know, two competing entities here. So I've enjoyed just like having more freedom to wear my hoodie and t-shirts to whatever meeting I'm at and, you know, yeah, it's nice. I'm to so
1: glad you brought that up, Neftali. I think that people underestimate some of those little nuances, right? Of of the power move, right? And, and the impression that you want to put across. So I was the person that was like, I will wear a blazer. Like there will be a blazer. I will not go anywhere without a blazer. And I remember other people on my team like, yeah, I'm just gonna grab my cardigan. I'm like, oh no, I will have a blazer. It was something about, the blazer right that made it all much more professional um so i'm glad you mentioned that it's just very different now pajamas on the bottom and shirt on the top
2: yeah well and you know the physicians i work with have talked a lot about and i've experienced this with our patients too there's a a different level of um like taking uh, the power differential of When, when patients come to the doctor's office, they're coming to our space and our environment with our cultural rules and professionalism. And one of the nice things about the shift to doing a lot of telemedicine is then we're kind of going into the patient space and they're in a place where they feel comfortable. Now there's a lot of risks. And we've talked about some of those risks over the course of this year, you know, when we had our podcast about, um. You know, intimate partner violence, and we, you know, there's issues of safety and confidentiality. But there are some ways that shifting out of the clinic environment has kind of created some some change and some safety for patients in a different way. I, you know, this is just such a nice transition. I wonder if there are other things that you guys notice as we're reflecting back um, that the team dynamics or patient care have been impacted by the pandemic.
0: Well, before we actually move on to that, I wanted to stick with the whole power thing because I think that's the thing that, um, when I reflect on the pandemic, I think a major theme is the reconfiguration of power, like across all of our lives. Um, you know, we saw obviously a key component of the pandemic was, whereas the um, response to um, uh, George Floyd and his murder, uh, Breonna Taylor and her murder. And one of the things that happened as a result of that, together with the collective sense of vulnerability that we all had was a sense of understanding the power dynamic in our social sphere and how the power that exists in the structures of society were differentially impacting our uh, brothers and sisters of color, right? And, and, And being more aware of that power and, and actually beginning to feel how powerful that was, that it's not just like, oh, this is an exception, you know, this is one bad cop, this is one bad situation. Being aware of that power, I think, I hope, certainly, but I also, I, I do believe this, will have a lasting impact. Like, that's, um, it, it, it reconfigured a sense of awareness of what, what power felt like in the in our, in our culture and our society. And it's interesting because it's all led to discussions of other, other forms of power differential. So it's heightened the conversation around income inequality, for example, right? Which is really about power. It's about certain classes exercising power over other classes. And so the idea that that in a year's span really translated to um, some really tangible change, say for example, the child tax credit that was just passed as a, as a result of the stimulus package, you know, that's really an experiment in basic income for children, which is a reconfiguration of power. It's, it's saying we're going to take wealth, which is really power, right? Tangible power. And we're going to say, you know, children deserve the resources necessary for life. You know, they, they deserve money for food and shelter and all of this. So we're going to give them uh, uh, basic income, right? I, I can't conceive of that conversation pre-pandemic, right? Because I think we weren't aware of power and the way that it's exercised in in, in our culture and our society. Um, and, and so, so I think to me, that's I'm I'm so much more aware of that uh, than I ever was.
1: I think those the awareness with that, with the pandemic happening and social media, like everything just got out quicker and more, right? Because it's not like the power shift wasn't happening before. The inequality wasn't happening before. Black Lives Matter was not just a 2020 thing. It started long before. And so I think with the pandemic, more people at home, more people are engaging in social media. You start to see that. You also start to see people that you thought you were cool with. You start to see some values that they had that you're like, oh, wait a minute with the comments around the tax credit and who's getting it. Um, and like, they already have tons of kids and on welfare. Why are they, like, you really start to see the shift um, in your collective group that was around you professionally and personally.
2: Yeah, I think I, I'm totally agreeing with you guys about the the coinciding of the pandemic and the I mean, just racial injustice really coming to a head, they needed each other. I mean, the pandemic had everyone home paying attention with nothing to do. And so then it amplified, like you said, these years worth of work that was leading into that. Then people were forced into conversation because also we didn't have a lot else to talk about. There were no movies coming out to distract us. There were no vacations to go on that we could, you know, used to, to get away, it was confronted and we had to face it.
1: I think we also, you know, kind of leading into your question earlier, Grace, I feel like anyways, for me, some of the colleagues that I've worked with and talked to, there was also a shift in the thinking of power when it came to behavioral health within integrated care, right? Because things were happening so quick, like in the beginning, I mean, I was kind of like Bridget, like, okay, like just wash your hands and like, yeah, you'll be all right. Um, but then as things started to change, PPE procedures were put in place in the clinic. But you also started to see this divide from being in clinic with the providers to now people are going virtually and having to figure out how to make that work. Um, a lot of places kind of went back to traditional behavioral health with just putting a bunch of patients on the schedule for the behavioral health clinician that's virtual and had a real struggle trying to figure out that warm handoff piece within the context of virtually. And so we started to see some shift and change and back to that power struggle of having to say, I'm a billable provider, like you're a billable provider, like let's figure this out how it's going to work virtually.
4: It was interesting when the pandemic really went into swing in the March, April, May zone, how the medical visits tanked and the medical system was not used to us having to go to patients. Whereas honestly, I felt as a BHC, I know how to scrounge. I know how to weasel my way into anything to be able to get patients the help that they need. So I was going to our clinic managers, our site directors and saying, hey, let's uh, take a page out of, out of a BHC playbook, let's call patients, let's check on them uh, and let's be more flexible with our visits and offer more of the telehealth. And through the whole pandemic, the BHC visits in our organization went through the roof, medical was tanking and then they kind of got on board and said, okay, so if patients aren't just gonna be served up to us on a platter, how do we go get them? And uh, I don't know, I don't know exactly what that all means other than it was kind of neat to see that some of these, this, the skill set of a BHC was able to get us through uh, a tough time. And it shifted medicals thinking to say that this isn't about providing well-child checks. This isn't, because there was, well, if we can't do a full visit, then we can't do a well-child check because we're not gonna get paid. It's like, well, we're not in the business of doing well-child checks. We're in the business of taking care of people. So even if we call them and we can't get paid for some aspect of that visit, it uh, doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. and doesn't mean we shouldn't do it and then advocate for it. So just like really opened up, I think a lot of folks eyes about that. I didn't accept the premise that, oh, we're in a pandemic. So now we're going to be really bored and we're not going to see anybody. And we're going to stay home. I'm like, I'm going to the clinic every day. I'm calling all of my people. I'm checking in on everybody. And then I'm going to the physicians and say, who on your schedule are you worried about who might be impacted a little bit more because of the pandemic? And I'm going to call these folks and offer them a visit and it is crazy the amount of people who were in absolute tears when they were like so you're just calling the check and see if like we're you know we're okay it's like yeah like I was wondering if you wanted to do a visit because we can do it via the phone and tears and I feel so supported and it was a really good opportunity to be able to connect with the community and say regardless and I was like I'm not even worried we weren't even sure what we get paid for and I'm like I don't care I don't care for what we're going to pay for do the right thing and everything will work out from there.
0: Yeah, we're a uh, social worker by the name of Zach Cooper in South Carolina. Um recruited me to do a little uh, survey study with him. We just actually submitted to uh, Family Systems and Health, our our uh, organization's journal. And it's just a retrospective study on clinics in during the pandemic and what changes they saw. And uh one of the things that and it's just descriptive data, so it's it's uh you know too small a sample to really do any predictive statistics but one of the things we saw was that clinics that had you know it seemed like clinics that had pre-existing healthy organizations in terms of their integrated care fared better than likely clinics who did not have and maybe that's what you're talking about monica and i definitely saw this too in our consulting work that a lot of clinics that just didn't have a healthy integrated care team Um, reverted back to more of a co-located specialty mental health model of working. Clinics that had really active um, integrated care teams were able to maneuver that transition and make things like that proactive panel scouring work that Bridget's talking about um, figured out ways to do warm handoffs in a telehealth type environment, even if it wasn't the same as uh, what was happening before. So, yeah, I, I, think, I think it speaks to, to the testament of how, you know, integrated care is not just dropping a mental health professional onto a team. It's really about transforming the team and how the team operates. And I do think that the behavioral health professionals uh, did show their clinics how valuable behavioral health is and how, how great it is to be a flexible uh, behavioral health team, right? Because you're, you, you have someone like Bridget on your team who has that attitude, of I'm going to go out and get them and I'm going to do whatever I can, phone, video, whatever. We'll, we'll, we'll make it work. We're just going to go out and make it happen. i
1: call that the can do attitude. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You know,
2: we talk about behavioral, like integrated care being good for the patients, but also good for the team. Oh. And in our case, in our clinic, that was definitely the case the the provider's Like the medical providers felt cared for by our behavioral health team, the communication among our team, everyone checking in on each other was strengthened because of that kind of interdisciplinary. So even, you know, outside of the patient care itself, but just in our team and the people on our team and how we navigated these conversations of fear and uncertainty and cha- so much change in a short period of time in our clinic, at, at least, you know, N of one, but I'm sure that I feel confident we're not alone in this. That was made better by our interdisciplinary team and by us being able to care for each other and look out for each other.
1: You know, one of the really cool things um, that happened where I work in terms of kind of looking out for each other as a team, right? Because it's a unit, is they recognize like eventually not only are so many of our patients in isolation and so when they get that phone call um, saying like hey you want a session it's like yes but then the need to set up something for our own staff um, so the system as a whole created and staffed it themselves so it wasn't like a separate EAP um, you know EAP clinician type of thing but it was particularly just for staff if something is going on, you need to talk to someone, you pick up, you call this number, someone's answering. And they figured it out and staffed that in-house, which I thought was really awesome, just the opportunity to support the team as a collective. They have multiple clinics and a couple hospitals involved too, so it's a large system. Um, But setting that up to take care of your staff, I think is so essential because your staff have to be replenished in order to continue to provide this excellent service to the patients as well.
4: I think that brings it full circle to what you guys were saying earlier, that there's just, instead of it being your work and then your life, that it is impossible. They are intricately interconnected. It is impossible to tease that out. And this kind of gave organizations and maybe employees as well, permission to talk about their personal life and all of us coming together and saying, yeah, if if our folks aren't okay, if our employees aren't okay. Uh, or or they need support in their way, that's gonna impact their their work. There's no, there is no separation between the two. And every, all the books I read on Audible, uh, all the business books and leadership books I read over the last year, all say that it's like an absolute myth that this thought that like, oh, I'm gonna just leave work at work and home at home, Uh, bring your full self to work. I think literally every single leadership book was like the very first thing you need to do. It it reminded me of uh, what we say with patients, Yes, you have your evidence informed interventions, but the very first thing you need to do is get to know them. In my case, it's via the contextual interview. And every leadership book's like forget every strategy, none of that is worth anything if you don't have a relationship. So stop everything and get to know your employees. That's kind of neat that on a more global organizational scale, we stopped and actually took into account the context of our
2: employees.
0: Yeah, as long as you don't do it the way Michael Scott in the office does. <laughs> there are some boundaries we should have i don't think anyone should be taking
2: any business leadership advice from michael scott (laughs) he
4: actually though if you've watched the show closely he actually had some of the highest sales and when the the, his the district manager brought him in to talk about what he did i mean it went over horrible but he actually did have some of the highest sales and they wanted to know how he did it just saying
2: sales
0: good leadership not so much Christine posted something on the chat that I wanted to address as well, which is this reminds me that my girls are overdue for well checks, right? And so I, I do think that that's one of the things we didn't do well in primary care in general. I, I think, and it's one of the things that behavioral health, I think, showed medicine, which is you know, behavioral health really didn't shut down um, past maybe some lulls while we were working telehealth out for like a week or two, right? But like behavioral health went full bore, and got maxed out and medicine shut down for a long time in in some cases. And I feel like we did our patients a disservice um, because we're learning, especially now, like we, and obviously we didn't know a whole lot of that information at that time, but like, you know, we're learning, hey, we can do this. We can see patients virtually and in person safely. Our medical environments might be the most safe environments our patients go through, Um, you know, better than walking through a supermarket. And that, that I think is a regret because we had an opportunity to really support more individuals, keep up with care, um, play a role in, in an important role in, in, uh, in supporting our patients through the pandemic. And so I, I, I reflect on that and I think, yeah, there's, there's a lot of people like your kids, Christine, and worse, obviously with chronic conditions and things like that, who delayed care and, and just kind of didn't stay connected enough to their, their providers.
3: Absolutely. And I still, and they're not due for vaccines or anything this year, but they, I still haven't even gotten like a, hey, here's a letter. And Bridget just pointed out, especially our vulnerable patients. And I can't tell you all how much over the pandemic I thought, okay, we have, we have financial resources. I have help. Um, and I'm still, this is really stressful, you know, homeschooling my daughter on her desk that's next to my desk while the little ones are and I think that we really need to highlight that this has impacted moms so much more than dads and in different ways. I have seen anecdotally the that businesses or, you know, companies are saying, yeah, work from home. That's it. We get it. And then still expecting the male partner to show up to the meetings and not have their kids present. And a lot of flexibility is given to the females, which is lovely, but also very unbalanced and so what does that look like in a clinic Balanced
1: is a nice word because i really want to say archaic archaic like we have same family same sex parents we have like grandfathers who are the primary care provider like a guardian is a guardian is a guardian like period so if nothing it's archaic
3: right But exactly. so you are
1: nice <laughs>
3: thank you yeah it's archaic. It's terrible. Like, why is it that female p- female caregivers are given all of this flexibility and male caregivers are not? That makes it really difficult to, to do anything.
0: Well, and I, 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 you know, the other correlate to that with the pandemic that's been huge has been how um, women have also dropped out out of the workforce in larger oh. numbers, and that's that's been huge. Um, and we still haven't seen the effects of that long term obviously right but it it just again exemplifies the pressures that are on women in particular so so it's like it's like you know it's like we just woke up to the fact that like we ask women to do a lot and it took a pandemic to, to push women over the edge enough to say, I just can't do all this stuff. So I got to cut something out. And if I'm going to cut something out, it's going to be work. Right. I mean, that's yeah. Yeah.
2: You know, I think that's a nice transition into kind of the last question that I have for us and in mind, just being mindful of our time. If we look forward, you know, what are the challenges coming up I can hear a lot of the things even saying how are we going to make some of these good adjustments permanent um you know as far as being open to work-life balance and looking at that power differential and making those shifts in more (laughs) even (laughs) than we have at continuing that work um but what else you know either as a society you know meta meta system or in our healthcare system what are going to be the challenges as we're moving into the later stages and eventually out of this pandemic
3: i am curious if we'll see an increase in agoraphobia attachment concerns i remember the first time i left my kids after being home with them for months it was really hard it was like being a brand new parent returning to work again and as we go back into society what what will that look like what will that look like for our patients is that something we need to be proactive in asking about in, in labeling for the patients that we work with?
1: I'm constantly saying I, I'm hopeful that this is not just a moment, but an actual movement for change. Um, but I would be seriously lying to you guys, and y'all know me, I don't, I, mean, I don't really lie in sugarcoat, things like that, that I am mistrusting that it will be. Um, I I oftentimes I don't, don't lose sleep over it, but I oftentimes worry. Once things go back to whatever the new normal (air quotes) um, will be, what is business as usual like? What's going to be cut out for our patients, for us as professionals, for kids that have been doing remote learning for so long? Like the next day is it just go back five days and the anxiousness that that has already started to occur for some kids in my area who have, you know, been out and now go back, you know, for five days. It's a um, big push for vaccinations. For the most part, our state has been doing really well with that. But then it's, so since it's that push, then now is everything just gonna go open back up and everything's supposed to be normal again? For my providers who had to stop and now think about domestic violence via telemedicine, so are you gonna now not think about those nuances when the patients start returning in the home? You know, like I do have this angst of all of the good things that have happened. Will they stick and this be a real movement or will this turn back around and we'll be like, oh, okay, well, this was just that moment and now everybody just move on, you know, from social justice, the, like the whole nine. Yeah.
2: yeah. And some of that, I think, you know, the system changed so rapidly that there's gonna to have to be a lot of infrastructure that then comes under that to support a more longer term second order change. Um, because like thinking about telemedicine and how useful that has been for patients, but we're getting email updates all the time. Okay, here's the new date that that's gonna be cut off, that it's not gonna be paid for anymore and they'll pay for it for this. Oh, well, they extended the date. But it's not, it doesn't sound like for a lot of these pairs that it's intended to be permanent. And so what is that flexibility going to look like long-term? Because, I mean, we have seen so much innovation and so much creativity and so much you know, coming together to find creative solutions to these impossible problems that have popped up. But for them to be sustained, there's going to have to be a whole lot more structural change.
0: Yeah, I think also... I, I want to reiterate what you said, Monica, that that's one of my acts as well. I think, I think there's so much good that has come even in the midst of like how ridiculously horrible all this has been, that um, I do wonder how much of this is going to stick around. Um, and you know, my answer personally is just like, well, part of that just depends on me, right? I, I have to I can only control me. I have to, you, know, make commitments in my life to swim a little bit upstream of society, right? And to say, no, this I, I need to make investments in the way that I live, the way our family lives, how we invest our time and effort and how we champion things that are important uh, to us, right? So there's that personal commitment. And I know from a from CFHA standpoint, I mean, that's why we're, we're really putting a lot of effort as an organization into saying, do we live out our values? And specifically, do we live out our values when it comes to things like health equity? Right. We've talked a lot about health equity, but do we really do? Do we care about actually seeing that the gap between um, majority and minority cultures is bridged uh, with regard to health? And if so, what's the evidence of that? How do, how do we demonstrate that? And that. Grace, I love you bringing up the uh, second order change. That's exactly right, right? Institutions have to bring a systems lens to understanding their systems and the power structures that drive their systems and then reconfigure those power s- systems those p- and those structures. Um, and, and that's actually one of the things that we're we're trying to do, you know, humbly, because a lot of this is like, we don't know how to do this exactly, right? But we're trying to figure out how do we sustain this, um, this change uh, throughout? Now, the other thing practically I would bring up that, that is a really practical change to sustain is this whole idea of, of telehealth, right? Both, uh, there's lots of places right now trying to advocate for maintaining uh, a billing for telehealth and lots of states are actually moving in that direction. Um, so that's positive. Uh, but then it also like, it changes the dynamic of integrated care, um, so you have to really be, clinics have to be thinking about. So in, in the study that, that I mentioned earlier that Zach and I put together, there was a drop in, in warm handoffs across clinics. And that's one of the hardest things probably to translate uh, in a PCBH model, uh, especially, uh, into a telehealth environment, right? So clinics are gonna have to figure that out because I think a lot of clinics will be using telehealth to solve some basic problems. Like I've got nine clinics, six of them are rural clinics I can't afford to put a, B, a single bHC out there but I can I can put up put an iPad in an exam room right and so we're going to start using T but how you do that has to be done in a systematic structured way where you you know you really mindfully think how do we do this and still maintain the integrity and cohesiveness of the teamwork that we want to do so that this is not just a specialty mental health provider hanging out somewhere
1: yeah I completely agree I think it's it's doable. I think you'll also reach more patients. I think what's going to be key is how the team stays cohesive and still continues to interact and communicate with each other, still working on the same goals, that type of situation. That's going to be up to them to make sure this does not turn into a specialty mental health situation. Completely agree.
4: Yeah, and I think being rooted, uh, really strongly rooted in the principles is key. It's the biggest mistake that I see and new organizations is that they roll it out as a service. They roll it out as a, oh, this is this thing we're gonna do without understanding the deep rooted principles behind what is the mission uh, here. And you'll see that with anything. I think that when folks are deeply rooted in mission, deeply rooted in philosophy, as the landscape changes, you change with it. But if you have a superficial understanding of what you're doing, and this could be in any area, the minute that there's external changes to that landscape then the whole thing gets washed away so i think it's it should challenge all of us to not be striving for superficial change but to have that transformative uh, change that Neftali was referring to
0: yeah and I'll, I'll just that's a great comment bridget i just want to hop on that because that's what i was trying to get earlier with uh, my response to Monica's uh, point about like wanting this to last. Like, I think what what makes things last is when your heart is changed, like it, something sort of deep in your heart. And that's what philosophy is, right? When you have an orientation in life, you follow that orientation. And I think about things like parenting. And I think, you know, I, I would not have said I had an anti-racist attitude prior to last year, like, I don't think I had a racist attitude, but I didn't have an anti-racist attitude. And that that then came out in my parenting, right? I, I, I wasn't raising kids uh, proactively to be change agents in the world in that way. And that's changed in me. And we've had dinner table conversations m- many, many times over the last year with my teenagers and my middle schooler about things that I feel a lot more Uh, necessary to and empowered to talk about related to race and the impact of power in, in society and, and how, you know, what that, what our values are related to that. So in a small way, I I think that's, that's the piece that I hope uh, has happened to a lot of people, like it has happened to me, where it's like, no, my heart has changed here. Like, this is not an optional thing you get to participate in. You know, this is just fundamental. And you're right, Bridget, that, that applies to yourself as a person, but also it applies to your clinic. If you understand the mission of primary care and you are designing your service around that mission, which includes obviously behavioral health integration, but includes all sorts of other team-based activities and development, then you know, you're you going to be able to adapt to whatever happens in your, in your sphere and you're not going to fall apart. But if you're not tied deeply rooted, if you're not deeply rooted to that mission, you're going to have you know, a bunch of team players pulling in different directions
1: have to tell you guys the visual I had when Bridget was talking and the team is not founded in the mission and falling apart that little thing with the air that flops all over the place that's outside of like car dealerships and stuff it goes to the left and the right and the front that is the visual I had of you are not grounded in your mission you're just going wherever wherever the, the administration tells you to go you're just flopping around please don't be a flopper, people <laughs>
2: Oh my gosh, if that is not the most perfect place to end this conversation, I don't know what is. Thank you so much for all of your words. This is really inspiring to me personally, as I think about the ways that Um, You know, I'm looking at the changes that have happened in our clinic and thinking about ways to make them permanent and provide second-order change for our clinic and then also for me as a person. So we have just a couple of things left. We have our special segment, um, which I'm going to let you introduce that, Nathalie.
0: Sure. So um, this is a really uh, cool special segment. Um, We have within our organization a group uh, that focuses in on the Latinx population and empowering healthcare professionals to work with uh, Latinx patients and their families. And so, they came up with the idea of producing a special segment for our podcast to help educate and empower you all out there um, to learn how to best work with your Latinx patients. So, the host of this uh, uh, podcast segment is Norma bali Barborero. Uh, she's going to be interviewing uh, Dr. Fortuna. And so, um, yeah, enjoy this uh, special segment. Uh, hopefully, you're going to hear some uh, words in Spanish. So if you want to do a little uh, Spanish practice or, or you know, you'll, you'll get a little bit of that feel through this special segment. And it'll be a recurring segment. So you'll get a chance to uh, hear from these folks uh, pretty frequently. So here's Norma. A
6: big warm welcome to Dr. Lisa Fortuna. Thank you. All right, so we're going to start off with our first question, deep thoughts here, uh, talking about uh, identity. So, how do society stereotypes influence you as a woman, as a professional?
7: Well, you know, I think some of the challenges are in terms of being a woman, um, being Latina, Puerto Rican, you know, also identifying as um, a woman of color, Afro Latina. Um, you know, all those intersections, I think, you know, are both strengths and they're also challenges, right? Because, you know, I I think in the field that I'm in, which is medicine, which is research, you know, there's often um, an interest in creating diversity in in those areas, in those professions, but there's also, I think, often questioning uh, of what people who, who are, you know, coming from, you know, diversity, communities of color, what, what we really contribute to the field. And I think some of the challenges are um, how to contribute from your own, own point of view in your own uh, experience and awareness, you know, and that, that contributes something different than what people expect. You know, I, I think if you can fit a mold of, you know, this is how you do science or, or this is how you work with the community or, or this is how you offer mental health um, in traditional sort of frameworks. Um, when you bring something new, new ideas, because you, you're coming from a different uh, viewpoint and experience, then, then that's not often easily to implement or to break through what people's expectations are, you know, even though it can be a tremendous place of creativity. Right, if we can add in all these different voices and perspectives into what we're trying to do, both in science and clinical and public health or whatever, if we can have those multiple voices, we could do so much more. But often um, it, it's seen as foreign, right? And, and it's not always easily accepted. And I think that's that's where the challenge is, because I think we, you know, if we have diversity, we can bring so much more to the table but we have to get it to the table, right? And the table's not always uh, having a, a, a chair at that table for everyone to be able to do that. And, and, and you have to really push and persist. And I think that's a challenge.
6: Yeah, so I'm, I'm hearing that there are barriers not only systemically, but also those intrinsic barriers of that people bring in. Like this is what science is supposed to look like. This is what uh, psychiatry is supposed to look like. Um, and so it, it's almost like there are, trying to stick with the table analogy, uh, like there are many tables and not enough chairs.
7: Right, exactly. You know, many tables, not enough chairs. And, you know, certain people get to be on the chair, sit on the, at those chairs, right? So, you know, and I, and I think that's, that's systemic, right? You know, from our clinical practice to, to research to the, to the fact that there are a lot less women and people of color who get funded by National Institute of Health, you know, um, and to be able to do research and and that's unfortunate because I think, you know, to be purely honest, I think we all lose when we don't have the, the, the diverse perspectives, you know, um, from our communities. Um, people who have different viewpoints and experiences to bring to science and practice. If you don't have that diversity and and multi-voice capacity, multi-experience capacity, we all lose in terms of what we're able to attain.
6: So looking specifically at health, what do you think are the biggest needs in healthcare right now, mental healthcare? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think access, you know, where people
7: universally where people can access the healthcare that they need, when they need it, in the right time, in the way that they prefer, Um, you know, and that's a a, a tall order, right? In terms of really being able to create health services and mental health services that are, again, accessible to all, you know, responsive to their preferences in terms of culturally um, how they can access it do they want it digitally? Do they want it when they're off work? Do they want it on weekends? Do they want it, you know, um tele? You know, uh, do they want it in person? Um, you know, I think, you know, people should have the right to health care and mental health care. Um, it shouldn't be a, a privilege. It shouldn't be like if you figure out how to do it or if you happen to have the time and the money and the insurance and you know, those things should be uh absolutely accessible and right. And, and then it should be, you know, how people prefer. And I think we'd speak a lot about, you know, what's, qual- what's evidence-based, what's, what's quality, you know, and, and we do have to, um, you know, have the, the research and the background of understanding what's effective interventions, obviously. But we also, I think even more important is how do we implement those? so that people can actually have them and and, and thrive at, by having these things accessible to them. Um, we can have the best cognitive behavioral therapy and best whatever medication you know whatever it is but if people cannot access it and if when when they access it it doesn't you know vibe with what they what they want um, then we're not gonna get anywhere, right? And I think that's the challenge, you know, and, and it's been the focus of my research, like quality and then how and then how to implement it so that it's accessible, not just physically, like I can walk in the door, but when I get there, it is it is speaking to what my needs are, and and I feel like I can get what I need. And and, and to me, that's the essential piece of people being able to get better. So I think that's the challenge. You know, how do we create Healthcare, mental health care that has all of that.
6: I think that segues perfectly into uh, my next question, which is, what are your thoughts on primary care behavioral health?
7: Yeah, no, I think primary care behavioral health is is a critical thing and a critical need. And it um, across the lifespan, right? Pediatric, adult, um, geriatric, right? I mean, you know, I, I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist, but... know i think uh geriatric mental health is even less accessible um you know you know in kids have school as another place that they might be able to get mental health services and we have to build that up elders um can mostly get it through their health care right and in their primary care um if they can't get out of their house there needs to be some outreach through their primary care and other services right to be able to integrate that mental health which we've done a little bit more with kids. Unless with even uh, elders. But primary care, it's the front line, right? You know, people go to their primary care. You know, we know in the Latino population too, like parents may not go to healthcare for their own needs unless they're like direly needing it, right? Um, You know, women will bring their children, right? To their regular visits. And we know that even in the Latino community, people will come and bring their children to their, to, to address their needs and their preventative care we have to grab the mom and the child, right? And make sure that they have the mental health interventions. I mean, I think that's why we have to have models of even dyadic care within primary care and primary care, especially with young children, right? If, if we have moms that are struggling with depression, which we, you know, hopefully are screening, you know, we have to be screening and identifying and also looking at child behavior. Um, you know, we can help families tremendously if we catch maternal depression early, right? You know, what, a bigger challenge, though, is the men. The men don't come anywhere, right? The men don't come to really? primary care yeah. or well, anything.
6: My grandpa.
7: <laughs> yeah, you know, and so, you know, they're even the hardest, though. You know, it, it's funny, though, but, you know, when, when I worked either in mental health or primary care, you know, the men come for mental health services when the women, <laughs> this is going to sound bad, get tired of taking care of it, you know, and like, they're, they're just like, we can't help you you know, anymore. You're gonna have to come and see somebody. We tried, you know? And and I've seen women like drag men in, right? Um, You know, unfortunately more ill than they would have been if they had come in a little bit earlier, you know? Um, But the community, you know, tries to take care of that. And when it can't, you know, it's important for there to be access to to care. And I think primary care doctors are uh, trusted, um, respected, a lot more accessible than me sitting in specialty care, right? Um, You know, if if I can come out there, we can do all kinds of levels too of care, you know, Uh, brief interventions, you know, after we're screening, um, you know, sort of, you know, bridge care, referrals, you know, work collaboratively with mental health services. I mean, there's so much that we can do and across the lifespan and and even family focused that if we could uh, have models that are reversible and sustainable um, we could do we could have so much more access and today when we're in the middle of this pandemic uh, where my primary care colleagues are telling me that they're holding on to a lot of very complicated mental health needs within primary care because there are not enough specialty care services to refer to they're really relying on both their integrated behavioral health of, you know embedded providers, and uh and consultation from uh behavioral health of how they can help manage. Um, you know, but we're finding it needs it needs the primary care integrated, the behavioral health services integrated, the psychiatry, you know, consultation and support integrated, and and also the integration of addressing um social determinants and, and, and social needs, all integrated, quadruple <laughs> integrated, um, is where I think we're getting the best uh Results, because again, that's getting at what what's your what's your preference? There's some people come in like are really depressed, and they're like, well, you know what? I'm I'm feeling depressed, but I need food for my family. I need help with my housing. If you can help me with that, I bet you I feel a little bit better, you know. And then you and then you start working with that, and that's their preference, that's their viewpoint. They might get to the point they're saying, but even with that, like I'm still kind of like dealing with things. You add some behavioral health supports you know, it's still not working, they're a little bit down, let's get some psychiatry consultation, right? And, and and so we can do that at the pace with the person, accessible, their preferences, working with them.
6: I think um, an important thing that I, I'm I'm hearing you say is that especially in, in this time with the pandemic and the just multiple needs of multi, multiple generations that like siloed care just isn't going to cut it anymore. Like. Mm-hmm. It's just this this collaboration, the integration, and then and utilizing that to have stepped care to really help populations, but especially with you know Latinos to understand the importance of the community and not take that power away from them, uh, but just yeah. to like, add to add the, the tools to the toolbox.
7: Yeah, that's right.
6: So you know, so I think there's an opportunity to address
7: some of these disparities. Um, and we and we have to support our prime as a mental health professional psychiatrist, I really feel like we have to really highly support our primary
6: care providers because they're actually holding quite a lot and it's escalating. And I think we're gonna see more of that delayed expression of like trauma and, and mm-hmm. grief. And um, so kind of help our, our primary care peeps out. Um, yes. all right. So now getting a bit more into you know como se dice. Uh, what are or have been the most difficult concepts, words uh, for you to translate when speaking about or speaking to Latinx patients or speaking to colleagues about uh, Latinx needs?
7: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it depends on who you're talking to, right? I mean, you know, the whole issue of, of discrimination, right, and the impact that that has on people's mental health, I think speaking from thinking about the Latinx and even black community and talking to these, you know, main culture, you know, describing things around discrimination and how that really impacts on people's mental health and wears them down, you know, and and the disparities and the sense of uh, being not, you know, separated or not belonging, disparaged, all all, all those things, how that has an impact on mental health. I, you know, when I describe that, um, and even in the scientific literature, like when I've looked at the impact of discrimination on mental health, you know, it went from, oh, you know, that's not really a trauma right? That's not really trim- Like, you know, that's bad. It's not good, but it's not a trauma, right? That's that's how people thought. And then now as I'm writing about it, they're like, well, of course, discrimination is a bad thing, you know, well, but so what, you know, like, how do you even sort of conceptualize it as a, as a real mental health issue? And, and the fact that people can, you know, I've done some research that has even shown that people can even get to the point of not having full, and, and this to me is a really interesting thing. A study that I did where people could not have... Full diagnostic criteria for depression or anxiety, Latinos, but still have suicidal ideation, right? That's that that's that's correlated with either family conflict or, or 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 difficulties in the family or a sense of not belonging anywhere, and they don't have all of the depression symptoms, but they have suicidal ideation, like have seriously thought about killing themselves, you know, and and to me, that's a profound thing. And, and they don't always kill themselves, uh, thankfully, you know, but they have this, I mean, obviously, the people that I'm surveying have not, right, because they're answering the question, they're still alive, but they have this significant thing. And then actual attempts in this study that I did was, it was low, even though this intense feeling was there. And, and when I published that paper, you know, people, before I published it, people were like, well, no one's going to want to, well, it's not important because they're actually not attempting they're just thinking they want to kill themselves and I'm like but you know that's a significant thing you know imagine if you how it is in your life wearing you down that you have all these issues and stressors and dealing with xenophobia and, and discrimination and all these other things to the point that you want to die right and you're not doing it because why what people say is I can't do it because I have my family I can't, you know, do anything to myself because, you know, religiously or whatever. I mean, at least those things are holding, but you're living with this intense pain, right? So, um, and I think people don't really understand the the full piece of that. Um, And then also how it can be in your body, right? Like how people can sort of physically feel ill from it. And so, you know, so sometimes what people say is, oh, you know, Latinos are so somaticizing, right? You know, like they're all have it all in their body. They don't don't get it. They're not psychologically minded. They're like somatic, but it's real, right? Like, you know, depression is painful, right? You know, uh, these stressors are physically painful as well as psychologically painful. It's just where do people express it and see it and feel it, right? And how and why? And then sort of, you know, translating back to Latinos, from, you know, the main culture to like female culture, you know, what I tell them is when they say, you know, I have this pain and, and this tiredness and this is stress or whatever, I may sort of, I may translate, well, that's depression. And they might be like, you know, well, what's really depression? And what I say is it's what you are saying, right? Like, you know, it, it, it could be this fatigue, this tiredness, this overwhelming, you know, and, and then they might say, well, you know, if I could just figure out my problems with my family, right? Well, that's fine. That's true, right? You know, if I could just feel physically better, that's true. So I think it's just, we're talking about the same thing. We just have to know how to conceptualize and translate and understand how people are experiencing these things. It's the same thing, it's how we're experiencing it. And then how do we support people through that experience into health?
6: Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Fortuna. This was so much fun. If you would like to reach out to our awesome Dr. Fortuna, I will have her uh, email listed on the CFHA website and any comments, um, questions, feel free to send them uh, to CFHA as well. And I hope that you all enjoyed this um, and I will have someone new for you next month.
2: Thank you so much, Norma and Dr. Fortuna, for that segment um, and for sharing with us some of the really important thoughts on working with Latinx communities. Um, As we close out today, although he wasn't here to join us, Deepu does have an ending meditation for us.
8: The following is from a written piece by our own Dr. Christine Ortina Runyon. For a deep dive into her wisdom and frame to move flexibly through this time we are living through, please listen to her interview with Krista Tippett on the On Being podcast, a Peabody award-winning public radio show and podcast that delves into questions of what does it mean to be human, how do we want to live, and who will we be to each other? Here's what Dr. Runyon wrote for our reflection. She speaks to our capacity to show up and survive in the face of incredible uncertainty. Here are some parting words for our thoughts. No amount of sophisticated technology can do what health professionals have done these past few months. Offered care with uncertain evidence, sat with the dying, comforted family members from afar, held one another in fear and grief, celebrated unexpected recoveries and simply showed up. We have asked and expected clinicians to show up in ways they were never trained to do. No one has been trained in how to emotionally manage months of mass casualties. No one has been trained on how to keep showing up despite feeling feckless on the job. No one has been trained how to keep regular life afloat at home and anxiety at bay while working day after day with the little known biohazard thank you to all our healthcare workers and clinicians who have risked their lives to keep our community safe and well and thank you cfha for all you do
2: thank you dpu Thank you all for joining me. Thank you listeners for being here with us and we'll see you again next month.